Welcome to Decoding Sales, a podcast where a salesperson, that's Peter, and an engineer, that's me, Alex, talk about the art and science of sales. In this episode, we're going to talk about how sales is not a, a one-person job. It's a team sport. Peter, let's dive into this. When I think about sales, and I think about the role of a salesperson, your job is to go and sell the stuff that I build. Yep, definitely. Why am I hearing that it's a team sport? Yeah, I think once you get into the deal cycle, there's so many nuances to selling that go beyond what the salesperson can provide. So I'll give you an example. There could be things in the roadmap or product development cycles in the future that you need to get clarification on before you're selling to the customer. Because oftentimes a customer or prospect is trying to sell into your vision of one to two years, not just the pitch as it is as you're selling it at that given point in time. So because I think there's nuances in what customers want long term, it ends up becoming a situation where you need to be able to connect with the internal team to be able to make sure you have your long term story straight. The other part of this, too, is not only like do you need to make sure you're aligned on the roadmap with your team, but there are also technical questions that salespeople just can't answer. And so leveraging internal knowledge to make sure that information is as accurate as possible in terms of what use cases can be accomplished with your given product, I think is really, really important to confirm before you try and close the deal in a unilateral way. So those are two like really different areas. One is about roadmap and vision and and using that as a sales tool. And the other is about just being able to go deep and and, and be credible and give accurate answers. Talk to me about a deal that only happened because of the roadmap, not because of the product functionality. I think actually NBC Universal is a key example of that when we sold them at Dropbox. The initial entry point of actually getting in touch with NBC was the fact that NBC already had thousands of users using Dropbox individually. Now, they were using it for corporate use cases because they were using their NBC Universal email address. But the entry point was that the IT team and the CIO and the security teams needed to corral their hands around the existing users so that secure file access, making sure they understood what documents were being shared back and forth was accomplished. But that initial entry point wasn't what actually sold them on the company-wide deal. The company-wide deal actually was sold on the fact that Dropbox was working beyond just file sync and share. And we were actually thinking about replacing heavyweight legacy systems like the file server in its entirety. So for our listeners who don't know what SmartSync is, it's essentially this way where users can access their files as if they were local to their machine, but the files are actually housed completely in the cloud. Now, the reason why this is important is because we all have limitations to space on our, on our local devices. But if you think about an enterprise organization, they're going to have way more documents than what you can save locally on the device. So the SmartSync feature allows you to gain access and visibility into that entirety, however many terabytes it is, of enterprise data without it actually locally taking up your your device space. And because we were working on that, NBC had faith that we would actually be able to replace their legacy file servers as well as a lot of what they were storing in SharePoint. And and by the way, the roadmap portion of this is that we actually didn't have that when they signed up as a company-wide customer. We were working on it. It was going to be released in the next several months, but we didn't have it. But they were so keyed into the design of it, and they were so keyed into 
the product managers at Dropbox and even our CEO, Drew, went to New York to, to meet the stakeholders. They felt like there was such a part of that process of seeing that vision through that they were willing to sign a three-year contract. It takes a lot of faith to get there. Yeah, definitely a ton of faith. And, and that's why a lot of buyers, IT buyers actually say, hey, listen, Peter, I'm taking a leap of faith here. So this better be happening. I'm not going to hold you to a date in which this is going to launch because I know how that works in tech companies and startups. But you understand that I am sticking my neck out on the line for you and for Dropbox. And I'm trusting you that, that the roadmap that you sold us is going to come to fruition. And so a lot of a lot of buyers and sellers are well versed in this conversation because in enterprise discussions it happens it's inevitable because you never buy a platform for what it is today you always buy a platform for what it will evolve into. When, when, you're, when we're talking about this, I'm thinking about sort of who has credibility to be able to say this three year deal. There's going to be this roadmap rolling out. I mean, people don't stay at jobs all that long, right? Oftentimes the median job duration tenure is maybe two years in Silicon Valley or something like that. You're going to be gone before the deal's over, probably. <laughs> yeah, totally. So how do you build trust when you might not even, they know that you know that you might not be there? Yeah, I think that's where the team sport part of sales comes into play. That's where I think the salesperson bringing in their product leader or their CEO or an engineering counterpart at the right time is what builds that trust. Because then you're not just getting from one person a consistent vision, you're getting from the entire team that vision. And so oftentimes when I close deals at the point of closing deals, sometimes buyers will give me that feedback that, hey, part of the reason why we're signing up is because you gave me access to your team. And to do that in a way where you are doing that at the right times, because also you can't bring an entourage to every single call. That also looks not very professional. And the other side starts wondering, does this person know how to allocate resources? But if you're able to do it at the right opportune moments and to actually answer tangible questions for the other side, I think it makes a huge impact. So a lot of the calls, a lot of the sales processes that I'm involved with is as much about facilitating those interactions as Mm -hmm. it is actually me saying something about the roadmap. Now, It can't also be completely flipped in that way either. You can't just not say anything. The other side is also judging you, obviously, on on how you talk about vision. So you as a salesperson can't just bring people on and stay silent and say, hey, I'm going to let Alex, my engineer, talk. But I think the combination of what you say and then how you bring in the resources to confirm your direction really makes a huge impact on folks. So to answer your question, even though I have left organizations before the realization or the full realization of the deal cycle, because I brought in the entire team, there's this foundation that I build along the way that gives the other side confidence that it's not dependent on me, the roadmap, right? It's dependent on the actual team and the organization. I love it. It takes a village to do anything. And I think one of the things you said that's really powerful there is if everyone's telling the same story, it's really hard to make up a story that everyone can then like repeat if it's not true. Yes. And, and that's something that I think, you know, in the hiring context that I'm very familiar with, oftentimes teams that, that I was hiring for, people who were coming and interviewing at Dropbox would have the feedback, you know, it was a really consistent story. I heard everyone I talked to 
said the same things. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not like we coordinated and had like a cheat sheet. There was like, you're supposed to use these three bullet points for this candidate. Right. I mean, we'd write down the details of the role, of course, so people would know what they were getting into. But it was more than that. People would always ask about the company vision. What did we like about Dropbox? Yep. And I always had, you know, a set of things I would talk about. I always talk about how we treated people well and, and we kind of operated according to Dropbox's core values, right? One of them is be worthy of trust. Yeah. Another is, is we, not I. And, and those are things that everyone would say because yes. we had these core values that we lived by. There are some places that have like 15 values. And I don't know how you live by 15 <laughs> values. It seems over constrained to me. I completely agree. Uh, I still remember those values at Dropbox. And it's so much a part of your day-to-day that it's just second nature when you're asked to regurgitate them. Right. And so, so I guess the, the point is, anytime you have a team that's really aligned on something for real, you can kind of tell because there is a consistency to it. I always thought about that in the recruiting context as an asset. And obviously, when you're building, doing product development, it's also really helpful people know what they're supposed to do. But here, I'm, I'm kind of seeing for the first time it's also an asset in a sales context. They can all talk about where Dropbox business is going. Maybe two years ago, we all had individual Dropboxes, but where we are today, where we were going was bringing it together in sort of a Dropbox that could be shared. And people knew that. And it sounds like it's really important for these, these sales calls. It's definitely important. And the last thing I'll say is you end up reconfirming and confirming the same things across a multitude of calls. And I think one of the most effective things either founders or salespeople could do is to call that out as it's happening. Obviously, you're not going to have your engineer on every single call, but the point that you do have an engineering leader or product leader, it's important to say, let's say you're the buyer. Alex, as I mentioned on the last call, our roadmap, our vision is to really replace the file server. And I've brought on my product leader to reconfirm that and to give you a little bit more detail Mm. around how we're thinking about that. So what I've done there is to actually indicate to my product leader that I've already had this conversation with the customer, but we're just reconfirming and diving into the layers of the onion a little bit deeper to be able to really fasten the, the screws on tight to make sure the prospect understands that. This is really what we're doubling down on, but you're getting more detail as the valuation goes on or as the relationship goes on. I, I like that reconfirming statement, that making it explicit that that's what you're doing. Yes, exactly. And then even calling out the people on the call, right? When I was at Dropbox, I'd mention Drew, I'd mention Ilya, who's a product leader. You know, I'd mention you if you weren't on the call and say, Hey, you know, as I mentioned, Drew's vision is really to take Dropbox at a more collaborative level beyond just file sync and share. The first step of that is to make sure we can actually realistically replace the file server. But then the next part of that is we're going to release a more collaborative platform to unlock real-time workflows across your teams. And I will say that in front of Drew if he's in a customer meeting. And then I'll say, Drew, we've talked about this, but why don't you give us a little bit more color as to how you're thinking about the next two years? And so kind of teleprompting, you know, the person that you're bringing on and using that as an entry point to reconfirm what you've already talked to the customer about, I think paints a really solid picture for the prospect because they're actually evaluating multiple vendors. So to get one or two or three themes hammered home from your end is, is actually really helpful for them as they start making the decision. So you talked a little bit earlier about you don't want to bring your entourage to to everything. Mm -hmm. As much fun as that might be. 
especially if you bring your entourage to those, you know, fancy dinners we talked about earlier. <laughs> yeah, that that is a great time to do that, right? Because that's a celebration. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to ask when when is the right time to to bring in the entourage or are this the the product leaders? How, how do you suss out? Okay, yep, this is a time where this is going to really make a difference. Yeah, I think the way I suss that out is that if I mean it's it might sound way too basic, but I'll say it anyways. It's just if you know that when the person is there, they're going to have a role on the call or the meeting, right? So oftentimes people bring entourages to show that they have resources. I think that's a bad reason to bring people onto a call because Mm -hmm. they probably are not going to be speaking or they don't have a specific role. The way that I think about bringing on a CEO, a product leader is if I have a very specific task or group of phrases or group of topics I want them to cover. Because there is a lot of preparation before those meetings to say, hey, Drew, you're the CEO. I'd love it if you were to focus on these three themes that we've been talking to NBC about for the last six months. If you could really hammer them home, it's going to make a huge impact on their side. Ilya, you're the product leader. They're really looking at you to specifically give them more details around SmartSync because that's a feature that we don't have and they can't touch and feel. So as many mocks that you can show... It's going to be helpful to the meeting for for you to be able to talk through those and then answer any questions. So basically, the way I think about it is bring your entourage when every single person is going to have a part in closing the deal. If you're going to bring an entourage and four people are going to be silent on the call and then one person is going to be a note taker, really, really bad sign to the prospect because I think it shows that you're not really resourcing your team effectively and that can have implications into product development and how you conduct yourself as a company. You know, we talked past couple of episodes about the salesperson as project manager. And, and here it sounds like the salesperson is the director. Yeah, in a way, for sure. They're directing almost a movie or a play. I'm in Los Angeles, so maybe the Hollywood <laughs> reference. Call works. It a movie. I just talked to like, you know, an IT person from MGM the other day. So I'm in that mindset already. But yeah, you are the director because oftentimes you are being prescriptive. And even in large companies, CEOs want that from salespeople. CEOs want to be told what to do because they understand that their salespeople know what the deal process is, not them. So I would spend hours prepping you know, leadership within Dropbox on what I would need from them at a specific meeting. When we were in New York and and we'd have a roadshow of meeting 10 people in Manhattan, I would spend some concerted time writing up an email for each meeting and putting in what the goals are for my leadership team within those meetings, because each meeting is going to be different and the goals of meeting are different. So the, the way in which you play those parts in each meeting are also going to be different. So, yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Sounds like a lot of work and really meaningful work to allocate those resources. So let's kind of go in the other direction too. You don't want to bring too many people, but you also don't want to bring too few people. Let's take the CEO. How did you know it is worth it to bring in Drew Houston, Dropbox CEO and co-founder mm-hmm. into a call? That's a big deal. I mean, his time is valuable. I, I happened to sit near his office for a while and I yeah. and he was always in meetings. He was a very busy man. Although he really wanted to go to Manhattan. So I think that played in my favor too. Oh. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a great question. And I think there is definitely a framework and a frame of mind for when you bring people in. It's not just, it's not as simple as what I said before, even though that is an element. I think the way that I thought about MBC specifically is that this was going to be the biggest deal in company history. So there was no way that it's not worth my CEO's time because it was going to make a material impact on the trajectory of the company, which Drew would care about. So that's one thing. The second thing is not only that, but we did a ton of qualification on the front end around, do they even have a budget? What are we dealing with? If we're talking about a $3 million deal, do they have $3 million or are they just interested in learning about a startup? So I definitely went through that because the worst thing you can do is bring a CEO and they're just in the exploratory phase. The second thing is, not only was it NBC, would it be the biggest deal? Not only did they have budget, but it was also the right people. So that's also something you think about. And when you're framing this, you're going to have the CEO meet with somebody that's a CIO or a group of folks who are in the exec leadership circle who are actually holding the purse strings. Is that so, going to be typically like the deal sponsor or the or yeah. them? Yeah, there you go. You're talking like a salesperson now. <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be the executive sponsor or the stakeholders who are going to be influencing the executive sponsor. And so for NBC, you know, it was a CIO, it was a VP of collaboration. It was even the head of news because at NBC, news is very highly regarded. They're bringing in a lot of revenue for the company. So just to give you a sense for what that looks like. And then, you know, the last thing is timing. I'm not going to have meet, have Drew meet NBC January 2015, let's say, and then have the deal close January 2017. So there's a timing element too, where it's you as a salesperson or you know whoever you are closing the deal, if you're not the salesperson, you have to be able to confidently say, we're now in the ninth inning of the deal, whatever that means to you. If it's a two-year deal cycle, the ninth inning could be the last six months of a deal. If it's a Three-month deal cycle, the ninth inning could be the last three weeks of a deal. So those are the different elements that that I think about when I bring in the CEO that you check off to make sure, okay, this is actually going to be a worthwhile trip for, for your leadership. So tell me about a time you brought in a CEO at the wrong time. What happened? Uh, you know, what happened was the CEO was like, this wasn't worth my time. Can I think the picture to me. You know, we had somebody that was in the exploratory stage. This wasn't at Dropbox. This was actually at, a, at another company. And basically what happened was the call was very exploratory. Well, the CEO barely said anything, actually. The mm. CEO maybe said like, hello, and, then, and at the end said goodbye. Basically, I know I'm, I'm being dramatic, but it was basically that situation. And I think the mistake was that I was so excited about the logo. It was a Fortune 500 company. And I was so excited about the title of the person who was joining the call that I didn't want myself to be the single point of failure if the deal didn't move on. But what happened is that because even though it was a large company and a VP of IT, that person was just exploring 10 different vendors and in that situation, you you absolutely should not bring a CEO because you haven't done the job of qualifying whether or not they're serious about the actual meeting. So that was a picture where I was talking most of the time, which you know is not great if you're bringing your CEO on the call. <laughs> and I think you know my one saving grace is that the CEO was able to obviously get feedback from the early stages of a customer, so it wasn't completely not relevant. 
But ultimately, it was still a waste of time because there was no deal there. And I could have used the CEO for, for another situation. Yeah, I imagine that's uh, just kind of like personally embarrassing and makes you a little gun shy for pulling the CEO in next time, too. Yeah, definitely embarrassing, but you know, also something that you learn from. And definitely was. It, it takes a while to, to bring your CEO again on another call, I'd say. But you know, that's why I think these very clear guardrails and these triggers are important. So I understood, I learned pretty quickly right after that call that the trigger can't be the company size and the title. It has to be something more than that. Substantive in the, the, the project of executing the deal. Exactly. Project of executing the deal and it has to be substantive. And it happens, you know, with people on my team too, when I was managing folks and, and there's a time and place, you know, for me, I'm not the CEO, obviously. So I would tell my team, hey, especially in the early going, as you're getting ramped up as an employee, include me on everything because I want to see how you're handling every stage of the deal cycle. But for the CEO, that's not really the goal when you have limited time and resources. It's really to leverage that person to, to help close deals. I think that's just such a great example. When you talk through that, I'm like feeling viscerally like, ah, yes, this is the feeling of being in the room with your CEO wondering, why am I here? And I think it helps clarify for people what not to do, which is sometimes as valuable as as what to do. So thank you for sharing that. For sure. Can I say one other thing? There are situations, though, where leadership will specifically say, I want to see every part of the deal. And so with Dennis Woodside, who was- Chief Operating Officer of Dropbox for four years, I think. Yeah, four years. And he's now president of Impossible Foods. I remember he wanted to go on a trip with me in Los Angeles to meet a bunch of media companies. And the specific mandate was, I just want to meet as many customers as possible. So in that case, you know, he really wasn't speaking a lot at the meetings, actually. But he was trying to judge, how does Peter handle these conversations? How do these conversations go? And what is the other side saying as Peter's giving the pitch? That goes back to sales is kind of the eyes and ears of the organization and the rest of the, the organization is kind of like the, you know, the brain kind of a little bit away from everything. So you're not really like seeing it unless you're out. There. Mm, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And one can't operate without the other. I think Andy Grove had this great quote, snow melts first at the periphery. You start to find out about problems on the mm. edges of the organization. That's great. You I love have, that. You want to be out there rather than, uh, in the center of the snow pile while you discover there's a heat wave that's destroying your <laughs> That's actually a really good phrase, really good concept, and definitely relevant to sales and internal teams, making sure that they're aligned as they're talking to customers. Yeah. So, Peter, we've talked a lot about sales as a, as a team sport and times it can go well, but I imagine there's also times that it can go poorly. Tell me what, what that looks like. Yeah. So here's a story where I think team selling went good and bad. So I'll tell you what happened at Slack. When I was at Slack, we were closing Disney. This was a big deal because Disney is Fortune 500 company. They've created a lot of amazing content over the years. And I have a lot of great childhood memories going to Disneyland. But I was so you know jazzed up for this meeting that I was going to have with the CIO at Disney. I had spent hours crafting the agenda. The CEO was going to come in to speak, Stuart Butterfield, April Underwood, she was the head of product at the time. And then I brought in a few leadership folks as well, who I'm not going to mention by name, because this is where the bad part of team selling went. We sit down at this 
large boardroom style table. We have pastries on one end, you have coffee flowing and we sit down. I have this script that I'm going to go through, this framework where we're going to go through the existing state of Disney and Slack and then also pitch them on the roadmap in the hopes of getting them to a deal within the next month or two, because we had already been talking to them for two to three months. So we sit down at the table, Stuart's there, April Underwood is going to come in in a little bit. And I had timed it because it was a two hour meeting. I didn't want all the executives sitting there the entire time. So they had times in which they were going to jump in. But this one leader on the business side who had just joined, who's getting, by the way, a great package to join Slack. I won't go into the details. Sits down, is maybe diagonal to the executive sponsor at Disney who flew in from LA to be in San Francisco. And this person was on his phone the entire time in this meeting. Two-hour meeting with Disney. I brought in my... Sorry? <laughs> maybe. Maybe he was watching Frozen. Maybe he was actually doing research on Disney. Who knows? But I thought that was just unacceptable from my side. You know, a leadership member on his phone at a meeting with Disney can't even give this customer the light of day when they're about to give us probably one of our top 10 contracts. Maybe in company history, you, know, you absolutely put that phone away. And you pay attention to what Disney is saying, especially if there's going to be a deal. So I was, I was livid, but I think, you know, the, the meeting was saved because Stuart was so great in talking about Slack. April was great in talking about the product vision. She was so engaged. Stuart and April obviously have such busy schedules, but I think the customer saw them be really engaged at the meeting and was inspired. And ultimately, we were able to close that deal. But I just think it's an interesting story because leadership members take different stances when they're brought into meetings. And it's absolutely important, I think, to be keyed into the customer when they're giving you time of day at your headquarters. But sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes you have these executives that aren't on board and I don't know if this person knew, but that could have derailed the deal because I could tell the Disney counterparts being very agitated by the fact that he was not paying attention to what they were saying. And so that was a moment where I really felt actually pretty beaten up because I had spent so much time as a salesperson preparing for the meeting. But of course, when the deal closed, I was, I was very happy. I was thankful, but also maybe highlights sometimes you have to be very prescriptive as the director, as you said, of the deal to how even people should behave in these meetings, because it's not a given, regardless of the level of leadership you are. Sometimes people don't get the memo and don't put their phones away. But, you know, ultimately we were able to get the deal done and it was water under the bridge. Well, Definitely it's a great not. sales mm-hmm. is a team sport. You know, Stuart and April were carrying the team that day. Exactly. Stuart and April were great. Regardless of the busy schedules they had, they came in, showed up, and brought their A-game. You know, this other person who was not at the level of April and Stuart, by the way, they were actually not even at the C-level ranks, chose not to pay attention. And I think even if it's not April and Stuart, it can derail a deal. If there are a couple folks who just are not 
exuding customer service at a level that you need to close like a Disney size deal. Well, you know, I think that's a really good point, actually, what you're saying there, that the folks at Disney, they're probably going to get like a round of intros somewhere in that meeting, but they might not remember. They're not going to know who's who in the food chain. So like you bring in somebody who's not playing their role properly and it makes you look bad, even if they're not the most senior person, because you're representing the company at that point, not just yourself. I think that's very true. It's it's as much about emotion in these meetings as it is about the content of the meeting. Because a meeting involves preparation, emotion, content, follow-up, and then obviously the actual deal itself and the commercial terms. But the emotional piece can be derailed if you have one or two people who aren't really bought in to being engaged. Well, that's such a good point, right? Because there's that old adage, you know, people don't remember the things you do. They remember how you made them feel. Yes, it's so true. And customers, you know, when you play it right, they will tell you and they will give you a sense for that. And they'll tell you, I like your team. I, I think you have a ways to go in your product, but I like your team and I want to align with your team and the people on your team. And that's ultimately like the best feeling you can get as an organization, as a salesperson, because then you truly know you've played your cards right. And even if there's bumps in the road um, with negotiating the contract, which there were a ton of bumps in the road with Disney, I feel like I was trying to bug Stewart to go up an extra one, 2% every day that I was talking to him because Disney, you know, they demand big discounts and Stewart really wasn't wanting to do that. But I digress. As we talked about in uh, the previous episode on uh, pricing, if I recall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think Stuart would actually be a, a fine salesperson probably because he's very stingy with the discounts. But well, Maybe we'll get him on here. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I don't even know if he remembers me. Maybe he does. He might not remember me, but he might remember the feeling of me, right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what I was saying is what you were saying yeah, it's just as important to make sure that the customer is buying into the team as as it is the product in the company. You know, I think that's a great place to wrap this episode up. I agree. Yeah. Selling is a team sport. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. It's about how they feel about your team, not just about your product, because they're buying into, I think, as we talked about in the very first episode of Decoding Sales, it's about building a long-term relationship. Yeah. And then not to use an overly used phrase in sales, but people buy from people. It's so true, even today.